Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and uh, as always, uh, Thursday evenings from 6 to 8 p.m. Central, I've got your attention right here on the blogtalkradio.com network's Golf Talk Live. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be starting off as normal uh, with a great round of Coach's Corner. Uh, the panel is already in the wings, and we're going to bring them on here in just a second. Uh, and then a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be joined by uh, a fellow panelist, but also uh, my special guest tonight, uh, John Hughes. He's been a uh, a great, uh, a great asset uh, to the show over the years, and he's going to be coming on the second half of the show after uh, me and the other guys are done here on the Coach's Corner panel. He's going to be uh, here for the second half to have a great conversation, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. He's a, a great PGA Master Teach Professional out of Orlando, Florida, so John Hughes will be joining me in the second half. Um, as I mentioned uh, in the opening uh, comments, uh, we're live here Thursday evenings from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on blogtalkradio.com. Uh, just visit that link and up in the search key, just type Golf Talk Live, and that'll bring you right to the page uh, front and center, and you can listen to us live on Thursday evenings. But for some reason, if you can't join us live, you're welcome to scroll down that page and go to the on-demand section and all of the... So uh, you can visit uh, when it's convenient for you. Uh, two other great ways that you can listen to the show as well, if you prefer to listen and download it later on as a podcast, you can do so. Go to iTunes or Stitcher.com, and again, just type in Golf Talk Live up in the search key, and that will uh, bring you there uh, on either of those uh, media platforms if you prefer to listen. Uh, always love to hear from you. If you want to call in anytime during the live broadcast, you can do so by calling area code 646-716-4667. Uh, or you can email any questions or comments to me personally at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. If you're somebody that's in the golf industry, you don't necessarily have to be a teach professional or a coach or even a golf professional. Maybe you're an entrepreneur or maybe you've written a great book uh, about golf that you think would be uh, interesting to share with the – or maybe you invented a, a, an interesting product that are going to help some of the golfers out there. Uh, please feel free to drop me a line. You can email me at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com, and I'll see about working you in the schedule. I'm pretty much booked up for the rest of this year. Um, but I am working on next year's uh, schedule for 2018. So if you're interested in coming on the show, uh, email me at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. Uh, always update on social media, facebook.com, uh, linkedin.com, and, of course, twitter.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is Ted and Buck CEO, and that's CEO in capital letters. And uh, just visit Golf Talk Live blog. Don't forget to have the blog on there on Facebook and update there as well as my personal pages on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. So um, thanks for joining us again here live on, on uh, Golf Talk Live. And I'm going to bring out the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, joining me tonight, of course, is Brandon Stukesbury. Uh, he's the Director of Instruction at the prestigious Idle Hour uh, Club in Macon, Georgia. He was uh, ranked in Golf Digest Best in State uh, Instructor Rankings for Georgia. 
and was honored uh, in 2015 as the Central Georgia PGA Teacher of the Year. Uh, he specializes in competitive player development, but also enjoys teaching uh, really players of all levels, from uh, you beginners out there right up to the PGA Tour. Uh, he's been a member uh, of the PGA for 11 years, uh, certified in instruction, of course. Uh, Golf Digest uh, ranked him as one of the best young teachers uh, uh, under 40, and uh, also the Golf Range Association of America top 50 growth game uh, growth of the game teaching professional. Uh, he also got a, received an honorable mention from the U.S. Kids Top 50, uh, and he's a five-time PGA Award winner and the best-selling author uh, of the Wedge Book and soon coming. Uh, the putter book, which was going to come out this fall, but uh, I understand from what he mentioned here off air, uh, we're probably looking closer to master's time. So we'll talk a little bit about that uh, as it gets closer. But uh, also joining me tonight was supposed to be Pete Buchanan, but unfortunately uh, last minute he had to back out, but he found a great replacement. Uh, another fellow uh, PJ professional and owner of the James Kyle uh, Golf Academy. Uh, of course, I'm talking about James Kyle. Uh, he was a 2014 West Central Chapter PJ Teacher of the Year as well as the 2012 West Central Chapter PJ Junior Golf Leader of the Year, and also received an honorable mention in 2011 from the U.S. Kids Golf Top 50 Teacher. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about James Kyle. So, gentlemen, Brandon and James, uh, welcome to Coach's Corner and Golf Talk Live. Thank you, Ted. Hey, thanks, Ted. I appreciate it, man. All right, that's a lot to get out, so let's... Let's get down to the question. Um, you guys got too many accolades here. We're going to have to start whittling it down here or something, or, or uh, I don't know what we're going to do. But um, anyways, thanks, guys, for joining me. As always, I appreciate you giving up your time. Uh, guys, we're going to talk Thank about, you. you know, we have a lot of um, great topics that we've been covering uh, throughout this year on, on Coach's Corner. Uh, but I also, every once in a while, I like to throw in some questions that I've received, um, not only from students that I work with, but just people that follow the show that maybe have some questions. So I'm going to throw out some questions here uh, to you guys tonight, and we'll see what we can do about uh, answering uh, to the best of our abilities anyways, uh, giving some thoughts and input. So the first one here is kind of an interesting question. It was sent in by a gentleman that uh, I've known for many, many years. Uh, And his question is this. uh, He says, does everybody have the ability? Brandon, I'm going to start with you just to, to give you the heads up. Does everybody have the ability to reach a plus handicap if they put their mind and efforts towards it. And the second part of that question is, are there any physical characteristics uh, of a golfer that need to be in order to accomplish that? So we're looking for somebody that wants to get themselves into a plus handicap uh, range, if you will. Uh, does, do most people have the ability to do that? And if so, what, uh, what characteristics physically or otherwise do you equate to that? And if not, why not? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much, Ted. I appreciate it. It's always fun coming on your show. Briefly, I owe James a a terrible apology. You asked me if I knew him earlier, and I said no, and I looked him up on Facebook and realized I'm very embarrassed. (laughs) I totally whiffed it. James, I'm sorry. Um, I I don't know what's going on with my brain. Anyway, on to the question. So now that that's out of the way, and I feel like an idiot. Um, So so here's what I would say. I wouldn't be very good at my job if I didn't believe everybody had the ability to get there, okay? And so I I would answer yes, everybody has the ability, but with a gigantic asterisk on the side. And here's what that asterisk is. There are lots of people that will never get there, even if they wanted to, because they have much farther to go 
than other people do because of their physical and or mental capacities that they just have, right? I mean, some people have more hand-eye coordination than other people. Some people are naturally more gifted at sport. Some people are naturally in better shape physically than others are. Um, And so do I think everybody can get there? Yes. Do I think it is much, much, much more challenging for lots of people than it is others? The answer to that question Mm -hmm. is also yes. Um, Right. And in that answer is probably the answer to the second question is, you know, what physical stuff? I mean, you know, I I think a certain level of fitness is required Mm -hmm. to get to that level of play. Um, Not only because you have to have that level of fitness to practice enough to get good enough, but you also have to be able to hit the ball far enough. Um, You know, you have to be able to do some things that require a certain minimum level of fitness. I think a a minimum level of of hand-eye coordination and and spatial awareness skills and, you know, gross motor skill is required. I mean, I'm I'm not going to lie to you. There are some people that come right. to my tee that I'm not sure I shouldn't hand them a bowling ball, um, you know, and because they they just don't have the physical sports <laughs> skill to really play golf, and that, and that's unfortunate because they really want to play golf, and we do our best as instructors, but man, some people just don't have it, you know, and 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 others get it really easy, and so um, that's a tough question. Yeah, I think everybody can make it, uh, but I but I think. Some people just don't possess what's required, and therefore their journey would be so long and tumultuous, I don't think they ever would make it, if, if, if I right. can say it that way. Right. No, and, and I agree with you. I think that uh, certainly folks can uh, have the ability to, to reach that. Um, James, I'm going to ask you the same question, um, but I, you know, I, I want you to obviously give your answer to it, but I want you to look at it from a a different perspective, if you will, and not so much whether or not um, whether somebody can or cannot reach it um, in that area, but also what effort is required to be able to get to that. What do they need to do in order to get to those numbers um, in in the plus handicap uh, category, if you will? Um, So go ahead. Well, I'll tell you. What Brandon has already said is completely, I completely agree with what he said so far. And, you know, I would say that the biggest uh, hurdle, if you will, is the amount of time it takes. You know, if I even think about my own game and and how well I played as a junior and how many years it took me of training, you know, after school almost every day with my dad, uh, and I'm thinking here, you know, the first time I shot in the 60s was probably 19 years old, and I started playing competitively at age eight. So, you know, and that's practicing every day. So, you know, I would say players to reach that certain level, depending on where they are, you know, somebody that's, you know, 30 handicap, you know, to get to a plus, you know, who knows, does it take 10 years, 15 years? And they probably need to be practicing, you know, literally five days a week and multiple hours a day um, and most likely working with a coach, you know, that entire time. So, yeah, time is time is probably the biggest hurdle there for, for everyone to get to that level, I would say. Let me ask you – let me just expand a little bit further with you just for a second, James, just to get to the, to the physical side. I mean, obviously, if we look back 
you know, 20 or so years in golf, when we look at some of the players, um, you know, certainly there was some athletic players, but the athleticism of the players 20, say 30 years ago, uh, during the Nicholas era and Trevino and, and Arnold Palmer compared to some of the young guns out there today, uh, there's certainly a noticeable difference. And that's not to say that they weren't athletic, but people are much more into conditioning and toning and whatnot today. Um, do you agree with, with Brandon's assessment too, that, um, there is a certain element of physical requirement as well in order to be able to get to those low numbers? I would totally agree with that. And, you know, most likely the, the players that are, you know, have had like a sports type background where maybe they necessarily didn't play golf at the beginning, but if they had that eye to hand coordination, which is key uh, in other sports, whether it's baseball or football uh, soccer, you know, and, and that athleticism, I would say that they certainly have an edge over somebody that was not as athletic for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I would agree with, with both of you on, on what you said. I, I think that there is a potential um, for everybody to get to that area. Um, the, the one area of the question that I would is, do they have the ability? And, and Brandon, you touched on that uh, a moment ago. Um, certainly everybody I think can, if they're willing to put in the time and effort and, and, um, to achieve the results necessary, but whether they have the physical ability, uh, or the mental stamina, I mean, it's not just, you know, getting out there practicing two, three hours a day, uh, not just on the golf course, but on the practice tee, uh, working on various components of your game takes a lot of mental stamina as well as physical stamina. A lot of people think golf doesn't require uh, much stamina, but it actually does. Um, you know, if you're walking a golf course, uh, you know, four rounds competitively every week, uh, it takes a lot of stamina. And then on top of that, you're practicing in between. So this is why these guys on the tour, and uh, whether it be the LPGA or PGA Tour and, and, uh, and others out there, um, why they're able to get these numbers so low is because they're constantly working on all aspects of their game but they're also physically and mentally working on different areas of their game as well and their bodies. So there's a lot of components involved. Um, great answers, guys, by the way. Brandon, I'm going to jump back to you um, with this next question. And uh, this was also sent in by a gentleman I've known for a number of years. And he asked, he said, if you could suggest one thing, uh, and I'm going to put a high handicapper. They had, he had an 18 handicapper, but I think this would really be more applicable for, for some of our higher handicappers. Um, if you could suggest one thing for our high handicap golfer to work on in order to improve his or her game in order to lower that handicap and obviously ultimately get more enjoyment, what would it be? Uh, how, how about, how about I, how about I answer that with an area of the game? Um, I'm not sure if this is what you're That's looking fine. for or not. If it's not, That's you can fine. stop me, but yep. I, I would tell you, I would tell you ball striking. Uh, and that's hard for a short game guy to say, um, but 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 if you can't hit it solidly and you can't move it in the general direction of the hole, you're never going to lower your handicap. Meaning that you know there's this there's this there's this saying out there, right? And I've said it myself that you know 60 to 70 percent of the shots you hit. Are, are less than full swings, right? And so you got to work on your short game because right. that's where – and that's true. But 
if you took a 25 handicap and gave them a tour-level short game, they still don't break 80. Right. 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 Because they lose a lot of shots from hitting it fat or chunking it or shanking it or hitting it out of bounds or hitting it in the water or, or what have you that are directly related to ball striking. And so I would I would tell you, now that's a really broad target, right, meaning ball striking. That could be any number of things. But but if there's one thing that, a, you know, an 18 to, mm. to 25 to 28 handicap will get the most out of in improvement, it's making sure you hit it more solidly and curve it less. doesn't mean it can't curve. It just has to be predictable curve and repeatable curve. Um and if you yeah. can do that, if you can hit it reasonably solid and predict it and repeat it, that's where you start to see some some lowering of the handicap. Now, that doesn't get you to scratch. That's when the short game and the putting no. and all those other things have to start adding in. But that would be the area I would tell you that, that, would, that would get you the most bang for your buck if you're sitting on a 25 handicap. Perfect. Well said. Um, James, your thoughts on that same question. Uh, do you agree with what Brandon just said, or is there – maybe another uh, area or, or thing that you would suggest to, uh, to a high handicapper like that uh, in order to uh, see some game improvement, what, uh, what would you recommend to them? You know, if, if they came to me and they were saying, you know, I want to reduce my handicap by five strokes, of course, you know, Brandon is very correct there. And, you know, my, my first impulse is as well, you know, I know that so many 25 handicappers, their strokes, you know, on the putting green are so poor. So if that was my first question, you know, how are you going to do this? I would probably, once I see them hit the shots, I'm going to have to try to push them towards putting, you know, trying to reduce the number of strokes in putting. And, Mm. you know, just on a quick side note, I know Brandon is coming out with that other book about putting. So I'm really looking forward to what his thoughts on on that are uh, being an aim point guy. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, for me as a player and everyone I work with those shots, you know, from 30 yards in uh, I've tracked a lot of stats on, you know, when players are missing the green and it seems like the, the yardages are always around 30 to 40 yards. So I guess for me, I'd probably focus in on that myself, especially on the putting side uh, on how I could, you know, if they're, you know, a lot of players I ask, they're always near 40 putts per round. So I'm always trying to get them down by 30 or 32, uh, at least initially. Uh, so that's probably what I'm going to do. I might be a little bit different, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's correct. You know, as far as solid ball striking, you know, so many players, when they tee off on the on the tee shot, you know, they, they end up with a negative feeling right when they go to leave the tee because that shot just from the tee box is, you know, not in play. It's in the trees or it's in the hazards or what have you. So, you know, as soon as you have those penalties off the tee, that's certainly a big deal, and he's correct there for sure. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm going to say something just a little bit differently, and I know this sounds a little facetious, but I know the gentleman that sent me this question, and I know that he, when we had our conversation before uh, I came on tonight, uh, he was being a little facetious with me. So I asked him, um, you know, what he thought uh, an answer would be, and he said, well, he said, if you look at the question, he says, nowhere in the question does it say that this person is working with an instructor at this time. So he said, if it was me, the first thing I would suggest is to take lessons. 
And I thought about it for a second. That sounds very simple. But if you think about the question, it says if you could suggest one thing for, and he put an 18, but we'll we'll say a high handicap golfer to work on. Um, Now, he doesn't say specifically that they have to work on it. It's just what would you suggest? Obviously, the first and foremost thing I would do is to make sure they're signing up for some lessons. Um, But I, I agree with both of you. I think it really depends uh, on the evaluation that we have as instructors with our with a potential student, let's say if this is a new person coming to us, um, I want to see what they can and cannot do first. If in in your case, Brandon, if they get up there and they can hit a pretty decent ball, then I would say I would lean more to what um, James was talking about. If they can't hit the ball very well, uh, whether it's off the tee or uh, you know their first couple of shots. Um, then I would say you're right up in, in the right alley there in, in improving their ball striking. Um, certainly they don't have to be hitting every single one of them crisp and solid, but there has to be some consistency and continuity in what they are doing. So it really depends on where they're at now, uh, where their ability is. But I think the first and foremost thing is I want to make sure this uh, guy or, or gal that maybe is – uh, taking some lessons and make sure that they're hooked up with uh, a, a certified instructor. Uh, but great answers, guys. Uh, I, I'll have to send a, uh, get my friend to make sure that he uh, listens to the recorded version. I know he didn't have time to, to tune in live tonight so to hear some answers, but those are great answers. Um, James, I'm going to start with you this time on the, uh, on, on the question. And uh, whether you've uh, been involved in tournaments or not as a player, um, I th- think this is something that a lot of people, whether it be uh, a professional tournament or maybe their club championship, but how do you keep focused? What would you suggest to a player to help them keep focused if they were playing in, uh, whether it be a four-day professional tournament or whether they're playing in their club championship? Um, a lot of times there, there's a lot at stake to winning the tournament. Um, what do you suggest to them to help them with their nerves and to help them make sure that they're playing with a repeatable swing uh, as they uh, manage their way around over the next few days or even uh, day uh, in a tournament? What would you suggest to them to uh, to do? Well, uh, I do have a little bit of experience in this, although I did not make it past level one of tour school twice in a row in the late 90s, but I have participated in that tournament twice. Uh, getting ready for a tournament, you know, you have to come up with a plan and you have to have spent a lot of time on a routine of preparing, uh, you know, the timing. The, I even learned years ago about how fast I was walking during a tournament made a difference in how much my heart rate changed. So mm-hmm. there are details, you know, your, your warm-up routine, the amount of time you take, uh, the shots you hit, trying to keep everything the same. Uh, I would say that for uh, competitive players that maybe haven't had a lot of experience competing, they tend to try to fix things. And so let's say even when they're warming up on the range, they make a huge mistake of, you know, they, they hit a couple of shots and maybe they're going to the right and they normally hit to the left and they begin to <clears throat> over-evaluate what they're doing and they, they try to fix. And they end up, you know, instead of just warming up and getting ready for the tournament, they end up over-fixing things, and then they take that to the tee. Uh, and depending on how they actually 
play their first few shots, they're, they're always fixing things. So that's a negative. Uh, you know, if you're moving a ball to the right on the practice tee, then you should just be, you know, hitting your shots and letting the ball move to the right. If it's moving to the left, then you do the same thing. Uh, but one of the big things as far as on the tournament course that I learned years ago was having the plan, you know, where you, you know, if you're on the first tee and the first tee is a five iron shot, and regardless if it's a par five or not, then, you know, you should be hitting five iron every day. And if, right. if that was going to leave you with a, a three wood second shot, then you're going to hit five iron three wood every day. Uh, you know, obviously if you have hit a poor shot and you end up in a different situation, then you have to improvise, but going around the golf course, having that plan, which is like your vision, you know, you've already, it's like taking a trip, you know, across the country where you've mapped out where you're going to stay at the hotel in between drives or, or the sightseeing, you know, you have to have a map Well, I'm going to be on this side of the fairway on the first hole. Then on my second shot, I'm going to be, I need to be on the right-hand side of the green. And that's your purpose. That's your plan. And you do that the entire round. And if you can, you know, learn to do that and, and set that kind of plan, you're going to have a more positive outcome for sure. Sounds good. Some great advice, uh, James. Thank you. Uh, Brandon, what about you? What, uh, anything that you would like to add to that as well? I'm, I'm, I know James has given some great uh some great uh, tips and advice there for, for players that uh, maybe are, are in a tournament format. Um, but how do we keep them focused? Uh, you know, these guys out on tour obviously have the um, ability to have a lot of uh, mental coaches as well as physical coaches that, that help them through the process. But for some of our amateurs out there that maybe are playing in a, in a, a single day or even a two-day event, um, what can we give them to, to help them stay focused and, and to keep their nerves calm? What, what are your suggestions? Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to give you an answer that's really a whole lot different than what James just said. I think he hit the nail on the head. I think far too many amateur players play on emotions instead mm-hmm. of on plans. Uh, you right. know, and, and to James's point, when when you can, immer- you know, how do you control your nerves? You immerse <laughs> yourself in the process of playing the hole or the round or the shot or however you want to look at it. And, and you know most people don't most people don't know that the guys that play at the highest level and girls that play at the highest level have every single hole planned to a T depending on mm-hmm. where the hole is that's the only thing that changes right rare is the situation to where they will alter that plan unless they're coming down the stretch and they know that they need to make three birdies to get into the top ten or to, you know, to maybe win. But, you know, they have that all mapped out, and they know, to, to James's point, I'm going to hit driver to here. I'm going to hit the next seven iron to this part of the green because the pin's going to be here. They know where they want to putt from. They know where they don't want to putt from. They know where they want to miss it and where they don't want to miss it. And the only time they they vary from that plan is when the ball doesn't go where it's supposed to, and then the very next shot tries to get back on that plan, right? Yeah, right. And, and so when they do that, there is no place for emotion in that. And emotion is what causes the nerves. Emotion is what causes you to stand on the practice tee and, and do what James is talking about. You know, you, you try to overcorrect, or you get on the first tee, and you hit a big wild slice, 
over into the right rough or into the trees, and now you think you got to fix something because something's broken, and then so then you start messing with your golf swing. That's emotional-based decision-making, and most mm-hmm. amateurs have no clue how to do that when it comes to competitive golf. The tour players have a big advantage in that they have a caddy, right? Right. They have a caddy, and they play the same <laughs> golf courses virtually all year. So they know how to play those golf courses. They know their games. They, they've superimposed their game on top of every hole they play, and they know exactly the plan when they go in. There's no room for emotion. It's all, it's all a decision. When they walk up to that ball, they say, okay, I'm hitting 7-iron because I've hit 7-iron here the last six years in a row. You know, and up the wind's coming a little from the left, so I need to aim it a little more right than I did last year, but, but there it is, ready, go. And so right. I, I think that's how you have to do it. I think you have to plan it out. You have to play your practice rounds. You have to get your yardage books. You have to immerse yourself in the process of playing that particular shot, hole, you know, side, round, day, whatever you want to look at, so that you don't let emotion get in. Absolutely. Yeah, well yeah, well said. I, I want to share just a very quick, and this is uh, sort of an edited down story, um, but um, I, we talked about this on, on the uh, Tuesday morning show with uh, LPJ professional Cindy Miller and I uh, on the Women of Golf show that, that I host uh, Tuesday mornings. And she shared an interesting story about Annika Sorenstam, who received some great advice um, about tournament play. You know, she was very nervous coming into uh, a, a U.S. Open and, you know, was really unsure of how to handle herself. This was obviously very early on in her career. And the advice that she was given was that in the moment of whatever particular shot on the golf course, you want to be 100% focused on that shot and on the task at hand. But once that shot has been completed, then the advice to her was to to really clear your mind, think about something else. In her case, um, she had just purchased a new home, and uh, it was suggested, you know what, think about maybe something different, uh, maybe some decorating or whatnot, until you get to the next shot that requires your attention. And the reason being, uh, and, and it really, and I'll tell you what the outcome was in a second, but what was very interesting about that advice was, I think the other mistake that a lot of players do, uh, especially our amateur players, is that once the shot's completed, they don't sort of release that thought process for even a few moments. And nobody even the best players can't go four or four and a half hours in a round and think nothing but without having some sort of an outlet because your mind just can't work that way. And I found it very right. interesting. And so she obviously took the advice and ultimately went on to win that particular U.S. Open. And basically the gist of it was is really your mind is only focused on the shots for a certain period of time in an entire round of golf. Uh, in other words, you, you only whatever the, let's say a minute per shot. So if you hit 70 shots, that's 70 minutes out of a round that you're actually physically um, executing a a shot. The rest of it's preparation and the rest of it is um, maybe some uh, thought processes as you talked about, Brandon. But in between, in a four-hour round, what do you do the rest of the time? Well, you can't be constantly engaged in thinking about every shot that you want to take you know, the whole time. So you need to have an outlet and other people do different things. Some people will just, you know, kind of enjoy the scenery, whatnot. And I think that there has to be that 
decompression, if you will, in a round of golf where you're not constantly focused 24-7, if you will, for lack of words, uh, on your round and not have some sort of release. What do you think about that uh, theory? Any, any comments to that? I would uh, personally, I would totally agree with that. I think uh, over the years, I've you know been outside the ropes and walking along, and when you get the chance to kind of hear a couple of the players walking together. In fact, the last time I was at the Masters a couple of years ago on a Monday, and we were walking with Nicholson, and he was in the group with uh, Brent Snedeker where they have this foursome that they, I think they always play together when they're in the same tournament. And Ricky Fowler, uh, it might have been Hunter Mayhem. But anyway, you know, they were Mickelson was not far from us and talking to Ricky, and as they're coming down the fairway, they were talking about, you know, fishing or something. You know, it was, right. it was not about golf at all. And, and then whenever it was time to hit their shots, they hit their shots, and as they were walking, they were, they were, their conversation was not about golf. So my guess is is that they all do that. You know, when it, yes. the shot takes them probably 25 seconds to really get into, maybe a little less. I think Tiger said he told the Buccaneers uh, when he attended their camp years ago when Gruden was coach that uh, uh, Derek Brooks had asked him, you know, how do you tune everything out? He goes, well, I only have to tune everything out for 12 seconds right, to hit my shot. And, and then I just now I'm – Back and back to the regular world again, so I think that what you're bringing up, Ted, is a really big deal, and and if amateurs could learn how to do that somehow, uh, they'd probably play a lot better. Well, and Brandon, this goes to the point. Well said, thank you, um, Brandon. This goes to the point too that I think a lot of amateurs fall into that same trap, and and what they end up doing. Just to give you a quick example, and then if you want to share uh, some thoughts as well, and then we'll move on to the next question. If you think about this for a second, how amateurs play their round, um, let's say, you know, the first hole, they, they maybe they par and, you know, they're pretty happy. Um, the next hole, they might even birdie, so they're really happy. But then all of a sudden, the wheels fall off the bus. They've uh, double bogeyed or even triple bogeyed the next hole. And fast forward two or three holes later, what are they doing? They're still thinking about the hole that they, they double or triple bogeyed. They're not thinking about the great start they got or in the moment, they're thinking about um, that bad hole. You don't see the professionals doing that. The professionals are able to tune that out. They recoup, they recover, and they move on, and they're in the moment. Whatever moment that may be, they're in that particular moment. Um, Brandon, do you also uh, agree with that, that there, there has to be sort of a decompression as you're playing your round? I mean, certainly be focused when the time is right, but then there has to be a moment, as, as James pointed out, that, you know, talk about something else or think about something else for a moment until you need uh, the time arise to re-engage. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, there's no question. That's where I think the caddies come in such handy on a tour. You know, I had a conversation mm-hmm. with a college player the other day. It is of my opinion that high-level college golf may be more challenging than the PGA Tour for two reasons. Right. One, you have the added pressure of a team depending on you that you don't have when you play professional golf by yourself. And two... You have a caddy. You have someone to talk about fishing or hunting or decorating or whatever you want to talk about. You have something to get your mind off the job at hand. Otherwise, you're left with a 10-minute walk or a 7-minute walk from the tee to the ball that you just hit in the bushes 
trying to figure out what you did wrong. And that's what happens, right? right? When, when, we're on our, when we're on our own, that's exactly what happens. And so if you can't yep. talk to a playing competitor or you can't, you know, have a, a caddy or somebody to talk to, I, I think it's a, a huge disadvantage um, to, to your point. I, yeah, there absolutely has to be some decompression. There has to be some time to just be normal, you know, and, and, and take yourself out of that moment. I mean, there's a reason that high-intensity sports like football or like uh, basketball their quarters are 15 minutes long, and the whole game is over in 60 minutes of play. Right. Golf takes four and a half hours, but if you condense it down to the time that we're actually doing the sport, it would be much shorter. Right? And so when you go out there and you try to stay, quote, in the moment for four and a half hours, you're dead. I mean, you can't do it. You just can't do it. The human brain can't handle it. And so I, I, I think everything we're talking about is spot on. I think that's why you have a plan. You know, you, you, you yep. pull out your yardage book. I make a lot of my competitive players make yardage books. And they're like, well, I know right. where I'm going to hit it on this course. I don't care. Make a yardage book because I need that to be your trigger. When you walk up to that shot, you're going to pull that yardage book out of your pocket and you're going to engage. And then you're yep. going to look at whatever your plan is. You're going to choose your club. You're going to hit it. You're going to put the yardage book back in your pocket and disengage. I don't care if you've yep. seen the course a thousand times, and so I think I think we're all preaching the same advice, and I, I think it's I think it's good stuff. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly, and that's why I wanted to mention that. I think that a lot of uh, amateurs make that mistake; they get too caught up in the moment, uh, in their round, and they're think, oh, they're overthinking the process and not taking time away to, as as it were, to smell the roses. And uh, I think a lot of them get themselves into trouble that way. Um, Brandon, uh, take a deep breath. I'm going to come back to you here. What's the biggest mistake that you see a lot of amateurs on the golf course make, and uh, what can they do to rectify this? What are some of the biggest mistakes? Obviously, there's more than one, but what are some of the biggest mistakes you see a lot of your amateur golfers make when they're out in the golf course? Um, obviously, during a playing lesson, you get to see this firsthand. Uh, what are some of the big mistakes? Now, we talk, are we still talking about competitive players here? Are we talking about no, regular no, amateurs, golfers? Amateurs. Yeah, just our, yeah, regular golfers, amateurs. Um, what's some of the biggest mistakes uh, that you see them making on the golf course? Trying to control the golf ball with their golf swing. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that is they hit one right, on the next shot they try to not hit it right. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, and so so I yeah. gave this example to a guy today, right? If uh, uh, I guess i got to <clears> stop <throat> using Peyton Manning as an example because he's retired now. But, you know, Peyton Manning takes the snap <laughs> and he's bobbing back in the pocket and he looks over and he sees a receiver open and he draws it, he draws the ball back and then he stops and he says, you know, in the last the last pass I threw went a little high and floated a little too much. So that must have meant that I released it a little weird with my right index finger. So on this one I'm gonna That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. He would never do that. Yep. Number one, if right, he did right. he'd get his head taken off, right? Number two, that's not sport. <laughs> That's not how we play sport. Now, our game puts us at a disadvantage, and this is part of why, in my opinion, golf is so hard. It puts us at a disadvantage because it gives us, it provides us time to think, right? Baseball, basketball, tennis, all those reactionary sports, we couldn't think if we wanted to because the ball's coming at our face at 100 miles an hour, right? Or, 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 you know, somebody's running after us trying to kill us. Um, And and so that's that's a big mistake. I, I think they, instead of just, 
making a golf swing to whatever level they are, whether that be 15, 18, 25 handicap, they try to control their golf swing to control the ball. And they end up playing terrible. Because whatever consistency they had, even if it curves 25 yards from left to right, if they just stood there and made a bunch of golf swings, I'll bet you a lot of them would curve 25 yards left to right. But when they start messing with it, one curves 25 yards left to right, the next one goes straight, the next one hooks left, the next one curves right, because every single golf swing, they're trying to control how they move, and it absolutely wreaks havoc on their game. That would be my answer. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're exactly right. I think this is why you see so many – um, amateur players out there, some of our, our high handicap players out there, get very frustrated with the game because they're. Uh, and the worst thing they can do is, you know, when you're on the practice tee or on the driving range, warming up, you know, that's your time to um, to make adjustments. But when you get out there and you're playing, you've got to play with the with the stroke that you've got and not try to tinker and mess with it while you're out, especially if you're playing in some sort of a competitive round because you're just going to um, hit the quicksand uh, awfully fast. But um, James, what are your what are your um, pet peeves, if you will, out in the golf course when you see some of your amateur players? What are some of the big mistakes you see them uh, making? Completely agree with Brandon. They all are, you know, like I mentioned a little bit ago, constantly trying to change what just happened, you know, reacting to what the ball did on the shot before. And uh, I would say my number two to that is every <clears throat> one of them, whether it's the, the men or the women, they are taking a club at the green and trying to get on the green when they shouldn't. So that means, you know, if they've hit a good drive and they're 190 yards out, uh, they're taking a club trying to get on the green or even 170, 150, uh, that they rarely even get on the green from there. So they're, I would say that they're over-aggressive as players. And they're trying to be, you know, better, but they end up hitting the ball into conditions, you know, like the designer intended them to do, in the bunker, in the water, in the trees. Uh, So my my second one is they always pick the wrong club in. Almost 90% of the time or more, they're short. Uh, They're trying to get on the green. And they they make poor choices in that area, and, and I think that from a handicap point of view, I mean, it hurts them all a lot. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I'm going to throw one more in there that I, I think a lot of times um, people overlook, and and that involves tempo um, and and also timing. But I think a lot of players that I see, some of the biggest mistakes that I see as well. Uh, in addition to what you guys just uh, threw out there, is the inability to swing within themselves. And what I mean by that is we all have a tempo and rhythm. Our bodies are all designed uh, differently. Um, What you might have as your tempo and timing, uh, James and or Brandon, uh, is certainly going to be different from me and, and vice versa. One of the things that I see a lot of amateur golfers, when they try to emulate somebody that they've seen on TV or somebody they've seen at the golf course, if you're somebody that generally has uh, a rhythm, say, similar to, um, um, say, a Freddie Couples, a very uh, smooth sort of uh, a slower pace, if you will, uh, 
uh, or somebody like that, or if you're somebody like a Nick Price who had a very quick rhythm uh, and quick uh, tempo and timing, um, you can't, one can't do the other. Everybody's timing and, and inner clock, if you will, is different. And I think one of the mistakes that I see is somebody that is more like a Freddie Couples uh, uh, slowing uh, timing tries to speed up like a Nick Price or, again, vice versa. And what that does is that throws their body rhythm off and it, it, they try to, to kill the shot each time they get out there. Uh, or they try to slow down their, their natural rhythm and it throws off uh, their timing incredibly. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I had a, a gentleman not too long ago who uh, is a very um, a slow, methodical type player, um, very slow when he walks. And, and I don't mean that, uh, you know, again, facetiously or anything, but that's just his natural body rhythm. But he gets up there and swings for the hills. In fact, sometimes he'll just about pull himself out of his golf shoes. And I'll say, why are you swinging so fast? Well, I want to get more distance. And I'll say to him, that's not going to help you get more distance um, by trying to, you know, murder the shot each time. And I think this is an area, and I don't know whether you agree or disagree on that, and I want to get both of your thoughts on it, is that this is an area that I think we see a lot of amateurs make as well, a lot of problem areas, is they're not swinging within their natural tempo or timing. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Brandon, I'll let you go first, then James. You know, I tell you, one of the funniest things I've ever seen, I saw a coach one time, kind of a mentor of mine. He was having a guy that was going through this very same struggle, right? <clears throat> and he brought out, he went into the he went into the, the bar of the club and brought out a uh, a stack of small styrofoam cups from the water cooler. Mm-hmm. And he had a guy hit a couple of drives, he put them on a tee, hit a couple of drives, and then he lined up ten cups in a row, flipped them over to where the side you would drink from is down, and put 10 tees on the ground and covered the tees with the balls or covered the tees with the cups. And he right. asked the guy to hit the right. ball, right, and the cup at the same time. And what he mm-hmm. didn't know is that about the third cup in, there was no ball in it, right? So it's kind of mm-hmm. like the old trick yep. when you're trying to learn to yep. shoot a gun, right? You know, you shoot one, two, and then somebody left the bullet out of the third pull, and you find out just how big of, of a crazy person you are when you yank the gun back and it goes sideways and it didn't even go off right didn't even shoot that was all you it wasn't the recoil of the gun and so it was so comical to watch this guy swing the way he swung when he knew there was a ball there right Mm -hmm. and and, and it was under the cup and then when he didn't know and and, and it was a completely different golf swing totally different right and so yeah yeah i think that's i think that's a big problem and I, and I think I think it's one of the reasons a guy like James or I could 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 look down the range on a Saturday morning and you can pick mm-hmm. out the really quality low handicap golfers just by watching their rhythm. Right. Yep. Because it doesn't matter what club they have in their hand, they all look like they swing the same. Right. I mean, yep. every club they swing, whether it's driver long iron, mid iron, short iron is all the same, and that rhythm never changes throughout the round. Now, I think that's something you learn as you get more golf IQ, if you will. You know, I think Mm -hmm. as you get better at the game, you learn to control that. But, yeah, I don't think there's any question 
that has a, a, a huge negative impact on a lot of amateur golfers out there because they just they start getting crazy when they get on the golf course and everything changes from one swing to the next. Yeah, and you look at a player, well said, Brandon, you look at a player like, uh, I was trying to think of uh, somebody besides Freddie, but uh, an Ernie Els as an example. Uh, Ernie, very tall player, very um, smooth, uh, sort of a slower pace compared to some other golfers out there, but he hits it a mile. Uh, but he, that's his natural body rhythm. Now, if he was to try and speed that up or slow it down even further, it would probably throw – and this is another area, too, that a lot of golfers fall into the trouble, is when they get out of their natural body rhythm, the swing sequence itself also falls out of rhythm. Uh, in other words, their timing falls out. Uh, now, suddenly, instead of um, you know, leading with uh, a certain part of their body – another part of their body is leading or trailing behind that shouldn't be because they're out of sequence. And so ultimately, as you pointed out earlier, Brandon, they're hitting it fat or thin or topping it uh, or all kinds of shots come out. And again, it's because they've changed the the natural body rhythm. And this is something that you're you're exactly right. When you look down the range uh, on any given uh, Saturday and you see a lot of, uh, you know, golfers out there hitting, you can certainly identify those, um, that are, are shooting lower scores just by the way they handle themselves. And it doesn't matter what club they have in their hand. You're exactly right. The swing should be the same. Um, the ball might go a different distance, might go a different height, uh, but ultimately the swing itself. And, and Nicholas talked about that many, many times in his career. Is it didn't matter what club he put in the, his hand. He swung the same. There was not 14 different swings for 14 different clubs. It was one swing but 14 clubs. Uh, James, quick thoughts on that, and then we'll move on. Yeah, I uh, completely agree with both of you. I actually have a couple of little devices that are really accurate measuring the the timing of the swing, and I use them a lot with players. Uh, it's interesting that for me, let's say the player, you know, is a decent player and they make ten swings in a row. The amount of time they take back and through probably only changes by uh, a hundredth. But I find that when the timing does change the most, it's when they are trying to produce a different outcome on the next one where even as the coach, you know, the three of us were standing there watching somebody all together uh, and working on something very specific where they, they tend to coach themselves. And, you know, like we've talked about, football has gone too far to the right. They try to do something to make it go more left or something like that. But uh, timing-wise, I've had the greatest success. Uh, most of my players that are that don't have great rhythm uh, are most most of them are around the point six, point six five on the way back. And uh, mm-hmm. I typically, if I get them slowed down to say as even as slow as point nine back uh, on the way down, sometimes their downswings are a hair slower instead of maybe like 0.25 or 0.27. But if I get them a little bit slower on the way back, their miles per hour at the clubhead speed at the bottom usually increases by, say, five miles an hour or so. So, yeah, the the rhythm, like Brandon said too, you know, when you, you can see when players, you can look around your range and you can kind of tell uh, who has good rhythm and not. And for me, like you said, I, I typically – slow them down on the way back. I really don't ask them to go faster, but if they do go a little slower, they tend to go faster on their own because it's like they've taken too much time to go back and they're ready to go. (laughs) 
Yeah. 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 No, it's true. Well, and I think this really further furthers the point um, that why it's very bad to try and pigeonhole everybody into the same uh, sort of swing philosophy, if you will. And I think this is a mistake for a number of years. It's obviously changing now as, as people understand um, the biorhythms of the body and the biomechanics. Um, but this was, I think, one of the problems with trying to put everybody into the same box. We're all uniquely different. Everybody has different rhythms and timings and, and body styles and so forth. And I think if you try to teach everybody exactly the same and not to the person, I think this is the trap as instructors that we fall into. You know, you might take five guys on the range. There might be some key elements that you're certainly going to teach each of them. But when it comes to their natural body rhythms and, and tempo and timing, each of them are going to be uniquely different. There may be similarities in some, uh, depending on their styles, um, but essentially they're all going to be different. And I think if we try to, uh, as I said, pigeonhole everybody into the same um, uh, format, if you will, I think that runs the danger where it might work for one, but it may not necessarily work for another. So this is just something uh, you know I, I like to try to uh, particularly pay attention to when I'm working with, with some of my corporate people um, because they, they get in there, they watch somebody on TV, and they try to emulate it, and I'll say, why are you doing that? That's not your natural rhythm. Well, it looked good right. that, you know, when so-and-so did it, or you know, and, and you have to kind of put the brakes on. Very quick, guys. Uh, we only got a few minutes left here, and I want to give you guys a, a quick opportunity to uh, let the folks know how to reach out. But a final question here, and I'm talking about yourselves. Um, when you do get the opportunity outside of teaching uh, to practice your own game, uh, what specifically do you like to work on, and, and roughly how long do you try to spend uh, on those parts of the game? Uh, Brandon, I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, I might be embarrassed to answer that question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I need to when work you do, on ball When you striking. do practice. Uh, yeah, I, I need to work on ball striking. I don't. Um, one, because I don't really take as much time as I should, and two, it's no fun. Look, I'm – just because I know how to tell other people what to do doesn't mean that I do it myself. Um, and, and, I, and I think as golfers, we always like to practice what is fun and what we're good at. And that's not very good at getting better. But when I have the limited time that I have, I'd rather go out and hit a few putts or hit a few wedges um, than do anything else. And shocker, that's the best part of my game. Um, mm-hmm. sure. You know, the, the, the ball striking is what I need the worst. And I just don't, I just don't do it. So, uh, the, you know, that's my, that's my sin, and I have, have confessed it for the night. Um, I should, I should spend more time practicing and spend more time practicing on, on what hurts. But uh, definitely, ball striking is what I need. Um, I, uh, if I could hit 12 greens around, I might be on tour. Um, but, but unfortunately, I don't. And so I'm not. <laughs> and uh, and here go. I am on the phone with you guys, you know. So anyway, that, there you have it. That's right. Sounds good. Uh, James, what about yourself? Uh, when you do have time to yeah, practice, I, I know it's not always easy. Yeah, I, I haven't practiced a lot in the last few years. But ironically, as you asked the question, the last couple of days I have been out and hit a few shots. Uh, even today I hit a few wedges. You know, whenever I do get to practice, if I get a 15-minute window, maybe even half an hour, uh, I have not hit any drivers, no long clubs at all. And I usually go out somewhere around 160 yards, and I'll hit a few eight irons into the green. And then I go up by the 100-yard marker, and I hit a few sand wedges. 
and then I go up and I try to make the putt. So I'm usually about 160 yards in when I do get the chance to practice, uh, and that's what I focus on, the scoring side. Yeah, I I have to confess too, and and let me just add this, that I think um, for those of you in the profession like we are, I think you, you come to the fast realization that if you're getting into the golf profession, uh, particularly as an instructor, um, because you love to play the game, um, I think you'll fast realize that you run out of time as your lesson tee fills up um, to get out there and enjoy it yourself. So if you're getting into the golf, and it's for any newbies out there thinking, oh, you know, I think I'd like to get into the, the golf profession and be an instructor and teach others how to play this great game, uh, just know that as time uh, goes on and you fill up your, your dance card, as it were, uh, you're going to be playing actually playing less and less golf. So if you enjoy yeah. actually playing golf, don't become a teaching professional. But if you like helping others like we do, uh, then this is definitely the, the profession for you to get in. Guys, thank you as always. I, I had a, a, a good time, and, and Brandon, you always uh, uh, give me a laugh or two, uh, so thank you for that. Um, James, I'm going to let you go first. Just let the folks know if they want to reach out to you and, and uh, how they can go about doing that or where they can find you, uh, perhaps through social media. So go ahead, and then, Brandon, uh, I'll let you go. Well, thank you very much, Ted, and uh, great to be on with you too, Brandon. Uh, James, Kyle, and my golf academy is James Kyle Golf Academy, and it's at East Lake Woodlands Country Club in Oldsmar, Florida, and my website is jameskylegolfacademy.com. And again, Ted, uh, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Well, thank you, James, uh, for for filling in uh, for Pete Buchanan tonight. And Pete, I'm busting your chops. Uh, sorry you couldn't be with us tonight, but uh, James stepped up and, and hit a home run. So we'll have to we'll have to make some adjustments for your schedule next year. <laughs> but anyway, thanks, James. Um, uh, Brandon, go ahead. How can the folks? Yeah, how how the folks can reach out? Yeah, so everything I have is under Stooksbury Golf, S T O O K S B U R Y Golf. That's my website, my Twitter handle, YouTube, Facebook. Everything is under Stooksbury Golf, and so that's the easiest way, uh, you know, to find me, James. I'm so sorry for being such a moron earlier <laughs> and whipping. Uh, you know, I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, you know, Absolutely. but uh, Ted, it's it, it's always a pleasure, Ted. It's always fun. I look forward to next year, and and I think I'm on maybe a time or two um, before the year is over. But uh, thanks as always. Okay, and and keep us posted on the book too. Um, the the putting book is going to be coming out uh, hopefully in time for for the Masters next year, uh, maybe sooner. But keep us posted, and uh, we'll have you back on for sure. Uh, to plug that. But, guys, thank you very much, as always, for coming on uh, the Coach's Corner panel. I had a great time, and I hope you did as well. And I look forward to seeing you. you guys uh, uh, next time on the panel. So have a great evening, guys, and uh, and uh, keep hitting them straight. And get out there and practice. Yeah, <laughs> you got thanks. It. I appreciate it. See you. <laughs> you got it. All right. Thanks. thanks. Good night. Bye-bye. All right, that was my very uh, special guest on the uh, Coach's Corner panel tonight, uh, Brandon Stukesbury, and, of course, uh, James Kyle filling in for, for Pete Buchanan. Thanks, guys. Did a great job. Uh, my next guest, of course, has been on uh, not only as a guest uh, in the past, but uh, is uh, pretty regular on the Coach's Corner panel as well. He's one of my favorites. Uh, John Hughes is a PJ Master Teacher Professional from Orlando. Uh, in addition to being a Master Teacher Professional, he's also the Vice President of the North Florida PJ Section. Uh, he was also a recipient of the 2013 PG of America Horton Smith Award, and he's also a regular contributor to Golf Tips magazine. In fact, he's a top 30 instructor there. 
Um, of course, I'm talking about my very special guest and friend, John Hughes. Good evening, John, and welcome. Evening, evening Ted. How are you? Appreciate the intro. Uh, honor to be on again. It's always a lot of fun, Brendan and James. I've listened the last half hour, and there's a lot of brilliance. There are a lot of simplistic brilliance is the way I'll say it, and I say that in a in a very complimentary, complimentary way. Let, let me ask you, John. Thank you, John, as always. Um, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I mean, you, you are, have been a pretty regular, I mean, I think every month, I mean, the odd one you might miss, but uh, every month I think you're on uh, Coach's Corner. You've been doing it pretty much since we've been starting this uh, in the last several years and always look forward to your thoughts and, and input into the show. Um, but I want to ask you, just based on the last question that I asked the guys, um, when it comes to your own game, you and I know this, and, and as do they, and anybody out there that's been in uh, this profession for any length of time, that the longer you're in it, the less you have for your own game just because you're so gosh darn busy. Uh, but when you do get out on the on the course and get a chance to practice on your own game, is there an area that you like to spend more time on, or and how much time do you try to, to dedicate when you can? I try to do it as much as I can because I run my own business and I'm a chief cook and bottle washer of that business. I don't have a lot of time, which goes into what you were saying earlier. If you want to get in the golf business, cause you're going to want to play more golf, I would suggest maybe uh, a nine to five job somewhere. Cause then you have at least four or five hours a day to play. Uh, early in my career, I worked a lot on ball striking. I was we I was a weak ball striker. I was graced with really good hands. And having played soccer previously as a goalkeeper, I learned to catch 100-mile-an-hour soccer balls, and you have to make your hands soft. So my short game has always been my strength, and I do enjoy practicing that, hitting pitch shots to various uh, distances, hitting creative shots, trying to walk around the green and try different clubs to hit various kinds of shots. And always trying to make it. I was always taught, hey, why, why are you trying to knock it close? Why don't you try to make all these things? It just reduces the number of score, the number on your scorecard at some point. Early on, it was tough, but it makes a whole lot of sense now, and it was great advice. As I've gotten older, a couple more injuries, I think my ball striking's probably equaled my short game now. And, and when I practice, I try to practice most everything, putting, chipping, pitching, ball striking, but it's more an emphasis of what you guys were talking about <clears throat> earlier, timing, tempo, mm-hmm. and I throw in balance. Uh, I've yes. learned over the course of my career as a coach and, and playing that if I'm out of balance, if I'm not in tempo, I'm going to have a bad day as far as the score goes. I may enjoy the company. I may have a great time. We may cut up and have a, and enjoy each other's company. But the score is going to reflect that I'm just out of balance and out of tempo. So what little bit I do get out there to practice, it's always that because I want to go to the first tee each and every time I play with that in mind. And, and that's probably the only swing thought I've had for several years now whether it's putting all the way to driving, whether I'm in trouble or I'm on a flat lie 128 yards to the pin. It's always about, Mm -hmm. can I stay in balance? Can I stay in rhythm? Can I stay in tempo? 
Uh, and when I do that, I play some really good rounds. I have some really good practice sessions. When that's a little off, everything's a little off. Yeah, and that's a great point, and that's why I brought that in there because, you know, this is something that I think we don't really hear a, a lot of talk about. Uh, I mean, it's sort of a given, I think, from the instructor standpoint, John, but I think that a lot of people, you know, don't really, you know, they're all about ball striking. They're all about, you know, putting, and, and all of these areas, are, of course, are important. But I think we, we have to, everybody, and I think as the industry is evolving, uh, and we've had some of these discussions in the past, but as the industry evolves, um, I think, and, and we understand more about biomechanics and, and the rhythms of the body and things like that and how each of us are different. Um, I, I think that instruction is starting to change and realize and recognize that we can't all play the same. Um, we certainly have certain common core elements of our golf game, but essentially uh, a faster player or a faster paced player, if you will, uh, is going to have a hard time if we try to ratchet him back and slow him down too much uh, to more of like a, an Ernie Els or a Freddie Couples or uh, along that lines. On the other hand, if you have somebody that has a, a more natural or slower body rhythm, if we try to speed him up like a Nick Price or some of the other quicker players that we, we've seen on tour, um, again, they're going to be, as you said, out of balance and just not going to feel right. So um, let's talk about, John, because I, I want to talk about this as sort of the topic tonight. Um, and, and that is, you know, a lot of amateurs out there, a lot of our high handicappers out there want to uh, connect with, with golf instructors, but they're not really sure. So uh, here's some interview questions that I put together that are fairly generic but fairly common um, when looking for an instructor. And one of the key things, and you talked a little bit about it a moment ago, is um, really to understand the instructor's background, their experience, and sort of what and how they got into the golf industry. So why don't you just share a little bit um, with the audience uh, a little bit about your background and experience and, and ultimately how you got into the golf industry. Sure, and, and one of the things I want to throw right up front, one of the most viewed blog posts I've ever done is through pj.com on this subject. It's re, rehashed every spring. Uh, I get thousands of views on it through there, uh, right. and I try to redo it every two or three years to reflect the common trends that are going on. My background, it, golf was more of a hobby for me in college. Uh, I was a, I was a collegiate and professional soccer player. And because of a torn ACL that didn't last very long. And some buddies on the right. dorm floor introduced me to golf. It was more about going out and having fun. They even told me the reason why I should play golf is because I could drink a beer. And I said, sure, why not? And it grew from a fun time with friends to a hobby, to a serious hobby, to a lifestyle, to a way of life. And it was all based on passion. It was all based on I'm extremely competitive. I'll probably remain that way until my son buries me. But my competitive right. nature has changed to the point where I know – I can't be competitive physically anymore. And I'm, I'm just at a point, I've been at a point for a long time where I enjoy giving back. I enjoy watching people smile when they discover what they're able to do that they didn't know they were able to do before. Possibly uh, it's fun to share some things, not in a, Hey, I know this and you don't kind of fashion so much as, Hey, here's an education. And with this education, you can play smarter. 
or you can prepare better, or you can think about this round like a tour player does and have it all mapped out in your head while maybe you're sitting on the subway getting to work or you're stuck in traffic kind of deal. Mm -hmm. It's, it's been a lot of fun to do that kind of stuff, but yet the competitive nature of me will try to pull some, some competitive out of people. I think the one thing all golfers share in common, no matter what the skill level beyond just having fun is we're all self-competitive. I've got a doctor. We're talking about timing and tempo. I've got one particular physician. He is a world-renowned physician in in his craft and his specialty, and he sees 40, 50 patients a day. He's he's in that kind of demand. So his rhythm, timing, and tempo throughout the day is very fast-paced. But yet, when he gets out of the car, when he walks over to the range as he speaks, he's a little bit more methodical. Uh, yet he tries to swing as if he's going to see that 51st patient. He's got to get in, figure it all out, let's get the diagnosis correct, so forth, so on, and go on. Uh, I'm able to pull some competitiveness out of him simply because I'm able to find what his hot spots are professionally from a competitive standpoint of view. His competitiveness isn't to be the best doctor in the world to compete against his peers. It's to serve his patients. So I'm always talking about those things. And I think as someone goes about finding an instructor, the summation of that blog post that I wrote 10 years ago that's still apropos today is it's a coaching relationship. you got to find someone who's going to understand you beyond just the golf club in your hand, beyond just, well, this is how you strike a ball. They've got to know – they've not necessarily know, but have a, a sincere interest in what you do off the golf course. How much time do you have off the golf course? What are your other life priorities? Where does golf fit into your life? What are the things that you do well in your profession? Think about this. Besides the eight hours of sleep that all doctors say we should have, we're now spending ten and a half hours a day at work. That's the current the current yep. statistics. So in those 10 and a half hours, you're probably doing your best. Whatever that best is, you've got certain traits, you've got certain characteristics, you've got certain habits, you have certain routines that make you successful. The coach has to know I agree. Because what I find is someone tries to go out to the golf course and reinvent themselves. They try to become Superman or Batwoman or someone like that. And that's not who they are every day. And and a great coach can pull that out of you. Not only pull it out of you, but recognize it. Be that objective eye to go, hey, Ted, a little fast. That's that's not you. You're out of rhythm a little bit. Let's get back to that rhythm. And whether it's James and his his, uh, devices to to count it down and to figure it all out, or just Mm -hmm. a coach pulling you aside, rubbing you on the back and saying, Hey, it's okay to be frustrated. If you weren't frustrated, you wouldn't care. I I, I do want a student that cares. I don't think any of us as golf coaches want a non-caring student. That's the most boring lesson we could ever give. Yeah, I agree. Let me ask you something, um, John, as well, Uh, you know, and again, this is um, something that might get asked, uh, you know, when you're being interviewed by a uh, prospective student, and that is, 
whether or not you subscribe to any particular teaching method. Um, there's been a lot of different methods that have come up over the years. Uh, there are some coaches and some teaching professionals that have for years uh, and maybe even to this day subscribe to a particular method of, or teaching style. Um, do your, yourself or um, do that? Is there any sort of one methodology, if you will, that's out there that you uh, favor or lean to? And if not, why? I, I, I like calling it, there is a restaurant, I'm not sure if it's around anymore, more called Duff's. And in the ni- early 1980s, it was a conveyor belt smorgasbord. And that's sort of my mm. teaching philosophy, that let's just stand at this conveyor belt and see what goes by. And if you like it and it works and it tastes good, then why are we trying to fix it if it works? If we see another... Right particular meal that we want to try there's nothing wrong with trying it if it doesn't taste good if it doesn't work then why do we keep going back to that same chafing dish as it comes around the conveyor belt again uh yeah what i've come to realize through the mentorship that i've had craig shanklin comes to mind right off the top of my head and so does charlie sorrell in in georgia is these guys are always re-educating themselves. They're always staying up with what's current, uh, the new science, mm-hmm. the new data, the new this, the new that. And they're incorporating it into not necessarily what they believe is right. They incorporate it into what they know is successful. And it bends and flexes based on the person in front of them. Uh, mm-hmm. you, were, you were stating earlier, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, it's sort of a one-size-fits-all box. What we've really yes. seen over at least the past three to five years is coming full, full circle to realize that there's only but a handful of elite athletes get, that can fit into that one-size-fits-all box, and even they have particular things that they do unique to them and their body and what they're capable of doing, not only physically but mentally. And we've come full circle with that, recognizing there's four, five, maybe six things that uh, arguably that can be said that all great players emulate and do the same, but how they get there is much different. Their philosophy of getting there is much different. Their thought process is much different. So when someone asks me that, I, I basically say, hey, if you set up your machine correctly and you turn the machine on, it should work and produce the product that you're asking it to produce whether it's a table yeah. saw, whether it's an automobile assembly line, it doesn't make a difference. If the machines are set up correctly, you turn the machine on and it should work. The difference between that and us as humans is we have brains and we have hearts. And as Brendan said earlier, if we can take some emotion out of it and then have our brains work more like a computer where we're repeating thought processes over and over, when we are struck with emotions, with the red flag goes up and we know to go to a different spot in our brain to alleviate that emotion and not necessarily become robotic. That's physically impossible. But if we can set our machine up, which is our body, to a target and be able to repeat that more often, you're, uh, even the, the worst amateur is going to be extremely surprised at the success level they'll achieve immediately simply because there's something consistent going on versus something inconsistent. Right. Yeah. And and you're exactly right. 
you know, I, I think that this is a, I think was a problem. Uh, I think it's changing now, but I think for a period of time in, in golf, I think that people were looking for uh, the, the sort of the secret formula, if you will, uh, to being, you know, playing better. So, you know, we saw, especially with the emergence of video, um, you know, everybody sort of, and I'm not talking about so much the teaching professionals, but even a lot of players that started producing videos uh, through their coaches and whatnot. Um, you know, I think it was great that we were able to see um, a variety, as you said, the, the revolving uh, conveyor belt that produces a, a you know different uh, smorgasbord of meals. I think that's great to, to that analogy. I like how you put that because that's exactly the way um, I see it as well. But I think there was a period of time, John, in golf where there were you know key elements, if you will, that were trying to to navigate the general population into uh, a methodology that they felt was. And I understand times change, but I think what what that does ultimately is creates a level of frustration because not everybody um, can play that way. Um, we certainly have core and key fundamentals that we all have to adhere to, and there certainly can be modifications, uh, again, depending on body styles and body types. But I think as far as everybody sort of um, you know, playing the exact same way, it just doesn't fit. Um, and, and we see that what, what was kind of interesting is, you know, when you roll it back about 20 or 30 years and you look at some of the earlier players, um, again, there were certain key core fundamentals that were consistent with one another. Um, but because of their shapes and sizes and athletic ability, uh, and, and talents, even, um, there was a multitude of different approaches to the game and for each player, had to find his or her success with that um, theory or methodology, if you will. And I think somewhere along the way, and I don't know if you agree or not, that there was sort of a bending of, of that methodology to uh, sort of create a one size fits all. And I think this created a, an ultimate um, level of frustration for a lot of golfers out there. I, I know, you know, folks that I've talked to that are, you know, in our, around our age group, that have bought just about every gizmo and gadget out there and every swing theory and, and method. And they've all sort of come back with the same thing is that, um, you know, I can't do this or this works for me, but that doesn't work for me. So if we fast forward to today's game, given the technology, and this is why I wanted to say this is lead into my next question is there are so many tools and technologies out there for us to use. Is there anything particular that you like to use in your in your teaching and if so why and are there things that you think that might be good out there um but maybe may or may not necessarily be necessary what are your thoughts as far as technology well i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna split technology into uh true electronic data collection technology versus swing aid technology. So let's right. start with swing aid first. Um, mm -hmm. I've always been of the belief before I ever decided, Hey, I want to coach golfers mm -hmm. that if a swing aid wasn't easy to put in my bag, easy to take out of my bag, easy to apply to me or the club, 
easy to use in various ways, not just one. That it was it was a very uh, flexible, very versatile swing aid that I could <clears throat> use in multiple different ways, and then take it apart and put it back in my bag. Then it wasn't worth my time, and I've I've always believed that some of the greatest swing aids ever have been homemade inventions that are now injected molded plastic that we're selling for 40 to $70, which were originally say a, a coat hanger or a tennis ball on a string or yeah. anything in between. <clears throat> so when it comes to technology, if there's a swing aid out there that an amateur is looking at, then Think about this. Are you going to lug a big circular uh, swing plane device with you everywhere you go? It's going to take you an hour to put it together before you even strike a ball. But is right. there another way to do that? Can you take alignment sticks? I just was at Lowe's this evening and purchased 20 new alignment sticks because they are so versatile. I give them to every one of my clients and I can set them up as a swing plane device. They don't have to carry the big circular thing. There's advantages to that. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not mm -hmm. knocking any manufacturer or any swing aid so much as let's make it easy for people. Let's have, if it can't fit in the bag, if it's not lightweight, it's not going to add a lot of weight to your bag. If it's not easy mm -hmm. to use, what is, what's the likelihood of you using it? Probably slim to none. But if it's versatile, easy to use, you're going to be more motivated. You're going to be happier to use it. You're going to feel like you get more out of it. And that's really the key. I'm mobile. So I've got a teaching bag full of those devices that I can pull out for any, almost anything you can think of. If yep. I had a studio, let's see, let's just call it a building or a studio. Would I have more things? Would I have bigger things? Sure. Because, they don't have to move around. And there are some really good, bigger swing aids that are non-data-driven that can put you in positions of feeling better about your swing, about uh, remembering what that feels about, about isolating positions. And those are all good. But I think what you got to look at there is, is this something I can afford to put in my basement or my garage? Or do I really need to go see my teacher and use it all the time? And is my teacher willing to let me use it while he or she's teaching another client? Uh, that's something to think about as you're thinking about what swing aids best for me. From a day, electronic data capture, I, I'm a flight scope ambassador. I've got to be transparent mm -hmm. about that from a, from a <laughs> Doppler radar standpoint of view. I love FlightScope. It, it provides a lot of things. They're getting into the customer end with their Mevo unit, very affordable. It will communicate with, a, with an instructor. Um, I'm doing video lessons with Mevo swings being sent to me now through a platform they've just done. It's wonderful, but I think what people have to remember, the common golfer has to remember, this is data that you may not understand, and that's okay. That is totally okay. Think of it more as an MRI. When you've broken an arm or broken soft tissue in a joint, you're going to get an X-ray, and that's video. MRIs are what delves deeper inside, a more three-dimensional look 
that can examine soft tissue and say, hey, have you torn an ACL? Is your labrum slightly torn? What, what's going on? Do you, do you need a stent in an artery kind of thing? And that's what those devices are. Your coach should be using it in that fashion. I never, unless I know I've got an accountant who loves spreadsheets, I'm really not showing them the data, but I'm showing them, hey, right. here's your benchmark. Here's your swing. Here's your swing speed now. Let's go out. You really want to hit it further? I think you can. Let's synchronize your swing. Swing rather. Let's find ways to make you faster with that swing, and it's more efficient. And let's come back in an hour or a day or a month or whatever it is over the course of time and let these things develop and benchmark it again. Where has the improvement come? And with that improvement, with bigger improvements come smaller ones. Maybe your attack angle's better. It's more efficient. It's a little flatter. Maybe the spin rates are better. Maybe instead of a, a left-to-right spin, you now have a right-to-left spin, and that's what you're working on. That's what that information's for. But then the other thing the consumer should know is your coach should be using this technology to help you learn to practice. I'll bring out FlightScope. They have a skills app, and they've got combines in there. Basically, I can design a combine for you. If you're deficient from 125 yards and in, I can design a six to eight combine target and have you score. And now all of a sudden, not only is practice legitimate to maybe where your weaknesses are and what you're trying to improve, it now becomes fun. It becomes a game right. versus a chore. And right. that that I think has been probably the most instrumental way those technologies are being used in a creative way. So much so that I know some people, some head professionals, some directors of golf who will take that technology out to uh, a par five and that's how they operate their long drive contest at outings now, or they'll put it on a par mm -hmm. three, not for a closest to the hole, but for proximity, and, and here's, here's the hole, and we have it drawn out, and I don't have to go out there with chalk or, or paint and draw a 10-foot circle. I can do it on the machine, and we'll know that, hey, you're inside it or not, and the person who's inside it the most gets a prize at the end of the day. So yep. what, you, what you really have to look at as a, as a golfer is when is enough enough? When have you overthought it? When have you just, when have you gotten to the point where you're paralyzed totally and you can't move, you can't do anything? Uh, you got to go back to basics. Go back to I, I call it simplistic brilliance. How smart mm -hmm. can you be in the fewest steps possible to get the most efficient use out of the resources you have? And I think if you're always thinking that way, that's your security blanket you can go back to whether it's a, a, a simple swing aid you put on a club that you keep yourself in a position with, or you're pulling out a twenty to $40,000 piece of data collection equipment and you're trying to accumulate and benchmark things, keep it simple. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and I think that, you know, and we've talked about this many times before, John, on the show is, um, you know, I'm all for the technology. I think one of the dangers, and I've, you know, I make no bones about it, is that we've got to make sure that we're using the technology and the data the right way and not just 
inundating our students with all, a bunch of numbers and, and, and complicating what could be uh, a very easy process um, by filling their heads full of numbers. Because, you know, the last thing that we want to do is have students going out there on the golf course thinking about all of these numbers that they're reading or seeing or hearing um, and then trying to focus on the specific task at hand. It's just not going to happen. You know, when they get above that, uh, addressing that ball, they should really only have one or maybe two swing thoughts um, at the most. And if they've got all this other data uh, piling in, then it just gets confusing and they don't understand uh, all of the numbers. And I think this has been one of the dangers that I've seen over the years with some of this uh, technology. But you're right, there's a place for it, there's a time for it, and there's a proper um, method for using it. I want to ask you this. I think, is, I think uh, you'll – hold on a second real quick. I think you'll yeah, agree ahead. with the statement. I, I said it that earlier that we sort of come full circle. When you and I grew up, we learned to play golf. And then yes. somewhere around video and when it became popular, the instructors became more educated. We became more knowledgeable. And then you bring out the Doppler yes. systems and everything else, and we're even more educated <clears throat> And with the invention of YouTube and Internet and everything else, now all of a sudden all this information is just so handy. We as an industry, I think I'm guilty of it. I'll fess up to it. That for a little while we were yep. teaching people how to hit a golf ball, not how to play. Yeah. And I think the full yes. circle now is the people who are using these technologies correctly are right back where we started, say, in the 1960s with no technology Let's teach someone how to play. Let's teach them that, yep. hey, the ball doesn't have to be struck perfectly for you to get around the golf course and have a good time, number one. Number two, if you really want to get better, then, yes, there are better ways of hitting the golf ball, better, more efficient ways of doing it. You can not necessarily become a perfectionist, but you can hit it with more consistency. However, it's going to take time. It's going to take a commitment. And if it fits into your lifestyle currently, fantastic. And I think that's where we're starting to get back to. Now we're realizing that we were sort of off on this tangent of let's teach mm -hmm. perfection. Let's teach this box of one size fits all. And this, these are absolutes. Well, besides the laws of physics, there are no absolutes. There's a lot of variables. There's a lot of modifications. And those modifications add up to two things let's go have fun and let's learn to play versus let's learn to be perfect because you're going to get awfully traded very quick. If that's all you're searching for is to hit the perfect shot. Yeah. And, and that's exactly to my point is I, I think that, um, you know, the sort of quest for perfection by a lot of amateurs has really um, been very detrimental to the industry overall. I think that, um, you know, I, and I'm sure you've heard it as well, but a lot of players over the years that have just said, you know, I just become too hard, it's too difficult, I just can't, I just want to get out there and I just want to have fun and I don't want to have to think about all these different things all the time. I think that, as you said, the industry is, is starting to come full circle. Um, I, I just got one last question for you. This is really something that, you know, I'm sure you've been asked, uh, as, as have I, um, but uh, this is something that I think that, you know, any a uh, good instructor or, or coach out there um, is going to be faced with. And that is, you know, a student comes up to you and, and maybe right now they're a, a 20 or 25 handicap and they've got a goal. They want to get maybe even just down to a 10 handicap. Um, 
using your experience and, and based on the, the knowledge that you've accumulated over the years, um, what game plan are you going to put together that's going to help them do that, that's going to assure them the greatest chance of success? What are you going to do on your end, and what do you require them to do on their end? I'm never going to require anything out of a client other than for them to do their best when they're with me and to promise themselves they're going to do the same for themselves when they're not with me. Give it your best. Mm -hmm. Give it 100% of your time and effort and energy and focus. It doesn't take five minutes a day. A lot of people feel like, man, I've got to go out and hit a bucket of 75 balls or more. No. Go, Go home, find a weighted golf club, do some exercises with the weighted golf club for five minutes. That's all it takes. And you can be a little distracted watching the TV doing it if you want, but give it your best. Be punctuated with your positions. Be precise. Those precise things you do in five minutes are always going to be better off for you. As far as what I try to plan, I'll go sort of repeating what we were talking about before is I got to know what your time commitments are. I've got to know how much you're going to put into this. If someone says, you know what, I don't practice, all I ever want to do is play, then working on a lot of things at the practice facility, I'm not going to say are useless. <clears throat> i just got to figure out ways that this person is going to become a little bit more motivated to go to the practice range and say, hey, you know what, let me instead of trying to hit perfect balls, let me get more target-oriented, and I call it target orientation and acquisition meaning let's orient yourself and line up to it, but at the same time, let's acquire it, let's hit it, and let's put some measurements there. Let's make it a game. Let's make it fun. That could be something that if someone comes to me and says, zero practice, I'm going to take five minutes and warm up, and when I'm done, I'm going to the lounge. Maybe instead of going to the lounge, they'll bring their playing partners out 10 minutes earlier and say, four bucks, to the person who can hit it 150 yards within 10 feet twice kind of thing or whatever game Mm -hmm. you want to make up. Uh, That person I'm probably taking to the golf course a little bit more often. Can you play smarter with the skills you currently have? Are you making great decisions? Are you keeping your emotions in check? Are you keeping the distractions to a minimum? Uh, Or do you have reset and reset buttons that you can push readily? when things get a little bit out of hand, when things you feel that are in your control, you've lost control of. Uh, That's probably one extreme. And then the other extreme could be a mini tour player that they just want to make sure they're striking balls well. Well, if they're striking balls well, why fix something that's not broken? Let's find something that's a little broken and find something that will help mend it, that will give you – another, pardon the expression, another weapon in your arsenal? Can you come up with a more creative short game shot that you never had before? Can you work on trajectories? Can you control a high, low, medium trajectory? Can you control the spin of the golf ball, whether it's sideways or or higher or lower? Uh, Can you do things with your, not your putting stroke so much as, your distance control and get really finite with it. Can you feel the ball off the center of the putter, off the sweet spot? Can you feel when it goes off the toe and what is it doing? 
uh, those kinds of things. The the better you are, the more self-discovery you've got to do in some really creative ways to gain the skills necessary to continue the improvement, to gain the competitive edge you're looking for. Uh, it's all based on the individual. It's never the same plan for the, for all the same people. I'll tell you that, yeah, you got to aim correctly at a flag or a target, and that's half more than half the battle. Science and data collection has proven that to us over the past 10 years. <clears throat> but other than that, there's a lot of different ways to strike a golf ball well. If you're aimed correctly, let your body do what it's going to do, but let's find let you find out why it does it. So it's not that you're out there trying to fix it all the time so much as you know, hey, I got a little out of sync. Let's put it back together. Uh, You guys were talking about that earlier tonight. That A lot of people go out and try to fix things. It's not about fixing things. It's about knowing what works. And when it's a little astray, you know how to go backwards a little bit and get it back to what works. Uh, And when, when you can think of it as from that standpoint of view, you can put almost any plan into use regardless of your skill level, and it should provide some success for you. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of um, of our high handicappers, I think, you know, the more knowledge on, on how to do just that, that they can acquire throughout their, um, uh, you know, their their careers, if you will, um, is, is going to benefit them. I think one of the mistakes, uh, and I think this is the point that James and, and, and Brandon touched on it a little bit as well, but I think particularly James was talking about, was, you know, when they don't have the right answer or they don't understand what's happening out there and they're trying to make adjustments on the fly, I think this is where a lot of amateur golfers get into trouble. And I know we've all seen this from time to time. And I think, you know, it's kind of like, for instance, John, and we'll, we'll touch on this briefly and then uh, we'll, we'll wrap things up. But, you know, a lot of players that we look at over the years, you know, um, Tiger had it, you know, Nicholas had it. Um, they all had sort of a go-to shot. In a moment of crisis, there was a shot that they knew that they could perform and execute um, with stellar-like you know, accuracy, if you will. Um, and I think that a lot of players would benefit by having that sort of go-to shot or even a go-to club, if you will. If you know that you're struggling off the tee, as an example, um, you know, let's put the driver in the bag and let's you know, if we have to even pull out a five iron or let's pull out uh, maybe a hybrid, if that's a, a good uh, club in your bag and, and let's be more effective off the tee. You know, John, I'm sure you've seen this. One of the worst things that you can do is if you're all over the place with your, with your driver on the range, then maybe that's not the best club to bring out on the first tee to, to help build confidence. Would you agree with that? I agree, but egos and bragging rights yeah. and all those other things sort of get in the way. Uh, come on, let's be real. Um, the the it, You sort of hit on this a little bit. I call them plateaus. And yes. all golfers reach certain plateaus. It's not necessarily the same handicap number for everybody, but – to give you an example, the average male golfer score, we all, we've heard this numerous times, hasn't changed in a long time. It's 98. Mm-hmm. So I'm always telling mm-hmm. people who are saying they're not an average golfer, they want to play average. The first thing I ask them is, what's your scoring average? 
And if they tell me anything 97 or below, I'm like, congratulations, you're an average or better than average golfer. That's a plateau. Yeah. That's probably the first one everyone wants to reach. And around that time, they start noticing things. They start noticing, wow, I do hit my three-wood better than my driver. Why? Wow, I am putting better than normal, or, or I'm a better putter than a ball striker. Why? Well, there's obvious reasons for that. You hit a three-wood better because it has more loft and it's shorter. It's easier to control. You're probably not of the mindset of trying to kill it, while at the same time, you're putting so good, guess why? You're hitting the putter more than any other club in your bag, at least twice yeah. per green, if not more. There's nothing wrong with being a three-putter as an average golfer. The The idea is to reduce that, and the next plateau is that. Can we take three putts and reduce them to one or once or twice in a round? Uh, can we have you hit that three-wood more consistently and buy into the fact that it's okay to do so. And that's typically when you reach another plateau. And and I think you'll agree there's tons of different uh, benchmarks is the term I'm going to use that fits into certain plateaus for different people. Those are normally the times when a golfer is the most inquisitive, the the golfers most interested in trying to reach the next plateau, which is I'll go back to where self competitive. Being mm-hmm. halfway up the mountain's not good. How do I get all the way up the mountain? And everybody's mountain's at a little bit different elevation level and that's okay. Uh just yep. how how can I obtain that? How can I get there? And when you start recognizing that as an amateur, you're you're half a step away from being a tour player because that really is the biggest difference between you and a tour player is they've seen those benchmarks. They recognize if the benchmarks aren't there, they work their tails off to plan, practice, play to those plans to make sure the benchmarks are not only obtainable, that they can surpass them. Uh, But the first and most important mental thing to realize is, wow, I've reached one of those plateau benchmarks. Let me find out why I do that, because if I can find out why I do that, now it's going to be much easier to get to that next level, because I have an understanding of the level I'm at now. Yeah, and and, and that's, a, you know, something that I think a lot of uh, our, our, especially our club golfers or our amateur golfers out there, um, you know, get into this trap game I you know I'm a firm believer John and as I'm sure you are that really you, you need to play your game um, and not worry about what somebody else is doing I think too often we try to emulate and again it, it, it falls back to sort of the human condition that you mentioned um, you know we all want to get out there and we want to be competitive and we want to um, uh, get out there and be a little bit more aggressive like some of our, our playing partners. But sometimes, you know, you have to sort of take stock of your own game and you have to be willing to uh, realize that, you know, you may never hit it 300 yards or you may, uh, you know, never, um, you know, be proficient out of the sand. I mean, you can try all you want, but um, everybody's abilities uh, are going to be different and you can certainly improve upon it. And it's really what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. And I think one of the things that I 
have seen here uh, over the last few years, especially with an onslaught of social media and and, uh, and so forth. John, I'm sure you've seen this as well, is there is so much information coming at us, not just in golf, but in everything, that it takes a discerning eye, if you will, to sort of decipher um, what's going to be good and what's not going to be good. There's so much information coming at us uh, at any given moment that you have to t- sort of take a step back and filter some of that out because uh, it can, in a lot of cases, do more harm than good. For instance, you know, you mentioned YouTube earlier. Um, there's a lot of great instructional videos uh, that you can find up on YouTube or visit, uh, you know, your your website or my website or what have you. Um, but there's also a lot of other information that's being put out there as well by uh, those that maybe aren't as qualified or decide that they want to put something out there about their own game. And I think that we have to be careful too that um, that we focus on our own abilities and our and and have our own game plan, if you will. Uh, and not get caught up in the hyperbole of, of everything that's sort of onslaught of being thrown at us. Because I think that that sometimes adds to um, the folks out there and their difficulties and the challenges that they're faced with and why they're unable to improve. Um, you know, put together a, a plan, John, I'm sure you do this with your students, is you help them formulate a plan that's going to best fit their game uh, and with obviously opportunities for improvement. Um, but essentially it's tailor-made for that specific individual. Um, and there may be some similarities from one student to another, but essentially it's a unique in, in, uh, plan for each and every student. And I think that when they start introducing, like the worst thing, and I'm sure you can attest to this, John, is if you're working with a student and they're coming to you every session saying, well, I watched this on so-and-so, or I heard about this over here, um, and they're trying to now inject that into what you're telling them, it can make for some difficult uh, sessions. Would you agree with that, you think, as well? It does, and I found the really simple way of not negating it so much as I love the term balance. I use it quite a bit, not only physically, but from a mental and emotional standpoint of view. From a mental standpoint of view, let's go back 20-some-odd years, and there was no YouTube. People were absorbing all this information through magazines. And the magazines yep. were doing their best to to put quality information out there from quality instructors. If you forgot about reading the articles and forgot about reading the captions and just looked at the photos and you tried to emulate certain positions and then looked at the circulation for, say, 18 to 24 months, of a particular publication, you're going to see a repetitiveness of content from, okay, we're going to talk about putting, and this is how you help your putting stroke become more consistent. Well, if you compare the images, a lot of those images are going to be almost identical. The -hmm. difference is going to be the captions underneath it and the article content explaining the images and what you should or shouldn't do. And that's really – the beliefs, philosophies, mentalities of those people, with all respect, that put it out there. They're brilliant. They, mm-hmm. they, were, they were cutting edge at the time. If you look at YouTube, the biggest thing I tell people is, why don't you cut the sound off? Why don't you cut the sound off and then stop motion places where you think it is uh, poignant to your game? 
that it's specific to an ailment that you have. And I try to mm. break it down into really three things, setup, impact, and your finish. Those are the three yes. big checkpoints of balance. So can you stop a YouTube video at impact and look at that and see what that's about and be able to see it from all angles and look at how a tour player better balances himself or even with my videos, how does a, how does a drill in, make a positive impression, make a positive modification to your impact position and what does that look like? The real key to the finished position, it's physics. It takes more energy to stop something in motion than it does to create that same body into motion. If you're not getting to a full finish, you're beginning the deceleration of the club prior to ever hitting the golf ball. When you're doing that, there's no way you can explain to me how you can hit it 300 yards. You can complain to me you can't, and there's a valid reason but you can't explain to me if you're decelerating into the ball and not finishing how you can hit it that far. Let me get out flight scope right. to objectively measure it. So when it comes to YouTube, everything else, cut off the sound, cut off the opinion, cut off the, the hyperbole. That's truly the hyperbole. And, and be able to stop these videos in places that are, are positions in your swing that are apropos to what you're trying to achieve. And I think you're yeah. going to be better served that way. Uh, and it, yeah, it, I, it, again, it dates back to the publications. It's the same philosophy. It's the same thought process. Yeah. I remember watching, uh, reading some of the, the older magazines and, you know, you would see it, like you say, about two years later and uh, you would think to yourself, I'm sure that article was out a couple, <laughs> a couple of years ago or that, you know, uh, Caption the lesson T was the same thing I saw with just a different instructor, but essentially the same information and and uh, maybe with just a slight twist to it. But um, John, I hate to say this, but we're we're actually out of time. Um, but I want to give you an opportunity, as always, to uh, uh, share with the folks uh, if they want to reach out to you, how they can go about doing that. Well, again, thanks, Ted. It's always a pleasure. It's it's rare that you and I get to spend an hour by ourselves just. I'm going to call it chewing the fat, putting, throwing spaghetti up on the wall and see what sticks. And, and it's always fun to do that, whether it's you or any of my fellow golf coaches around the world. It's always a lot of fun to do that. Um, a couple of plugs. Uh, I just want to mention that North sure. Florida has a new executive director, Steve McMillan, who came from Kentucky. Brilliant man. We're really happy to have him. We're very excited and one of the first – marquee events that if someone wants to come out and meet Steve is at the North Florida annual teaching and coaching summit that takes place Monday at reunion resort just outside of Orlando uh, featured is going to be the national teacher of the year, David Ledbetter, our section mm -hmm. teacher of the year, Tom Garner. And we're really going after the, I'm going to use this term, the young guns of the North Florida PGA, those guys under 40 years old, we're really making a difference in our industry, teaching the people how to play and making it fun and those and sort of sharing their best practices. If it's something you're interested in, give me a call. We can get you registered last minute. I think it'll be a wonderful day. Uh, you'll get to learn a lot. And if you're just the average amateur that wants to see David Ledbetter for an hour, interviewed by our, our day-long host, Charlie Reimer, a good friend of mine from the Golf Channel, 
Uh, it'll be a great mm-hmm. day. Uh, and again, you can meet Steve out there at the same time. You can find me at John Hughes Golf, whether it's dot com at hashtag. It doesn't make a difference. Uh, that's the easiest way to find me is John Hughes Golf, just like Brendan. I think Brendan stole that from me, but he won't admit it. Uh, but it's it's always a pleasure to help anybody, regardless of skill level. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I go home every day with a smile on my face because I may wake up every morning a little tired and groggy from the day before and maybe just like everybody else really not wanting to get out there. But as soon as I get the tent set up, I'm full of energy and and it's a pleasure to work with all my clients and anybody in the future that wants to come out and see me. Well, they would be well served. I can guarantee you that John as always. Thank you very much for uh, giving of your time and, and stepping up this evening and, and coming on as my special guest. And I look forward to you uh, jumping in on the next time on the Coach's Corner panel. You've been a great asset. And uh, as I said to the other guys um, uh, earlier off the air uh, tonight, uh, I'll be sending out the uh, 2018 uh, schedule for next year for everybody to, to jump in. So I, I, I'm pretty sure I can count on you, but I hope you'll uh, join in again. We've got some uh, very new, interesting things that we're going to be doing next year, uh, adding to the Coach's Corner panel. We've got to keep it fresh uh, each and every season. But, uh, John, thank you for, for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. It's been a pleasure as always. Same here. It's a, it's my pleasure and definitely count me in for 2018. And, and an unselfish plug, Ted, it's blog shows like this that really try to eat through the hyperbole, as you said, eat through the things that may not make a lot of sense or even apply that keep the industry fresh, keep people interested. Uh, We may repeat a whole lot of things a lot of times on Coach's Corner, but at the same time, it's things that we know are successful. And it's, it's media mediums like this and venues like this that we as coaches get an opportunity to share and we appreciate it. There should be more of this out there. I'm glad there's not because I, I don't have enough time to do them all. But I'm certainly going to be there for you in the future, and I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it, John. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate the plug. All right, John, my friend, have a great weekend, and I look forward to you uh, the next time on the Coach's Corner panel. And uh, we will continue to help uh, all of those uh, students out there that, that need our help. Thank you, John, and have a great weekend. You do the same, Ted. Thanks. All right, bye-bye. All right, that was my very special guest this evening, John Hughes, uh, PGA Master Teaching Professional down in the Orlando area. Uh, always a pleasure having him on the show, and uh, uh, particularly on the Coach's Corner panel, but it's nice, he said, to have him as a guest here on the show uh, so that we can uh, we can chew the fat and, and just uh, talk about some different things going on. Uh, I want to take this opportunity. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be winding down here for the season. I'm going to have a few more shows. I've got the month of November, of course, and then a couple of shows in December, and then I'm going to be taking an extended break uh, through the Christmas holidays and probably most, if not all, of January as I gear up for 2018. Got a lot of exciting things happening for the new year uh, on both shows, not just Golf Talk Live, but also on the Women of Golf show, uh, which will be also taking a break here shortly. Um, but I want to, uh, and I'll save it for a little bit later, but I want to thank all of the folks that have been on the show this year, uh, both guests and particularly the Coach's Corner panel uh, for coming up and, and doing a fantastic job. Uh, but I also want to thank all of you, uh, the listeners out there worldwide, for faithfully tuning in each and every week uh, here to Golf Talk Live. Uh, as I say, every, every week, 
Uh, I have a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a, a highly number uh, of talented um, coaches and teach professionals, authors, and entrepreneurs that stop by. And it's really through their participation and guest appearances that have helped to make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. And it's also, most importantly, uh, all of you tuning in each and every week that really uh, push us over the top. So thank you. Uh, to each and every one of you listening uh, tonight out there. Uh, please help spread the word. Uh, best way to find us, go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live or forward slash women of golf Tuesday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern. You'll hear LPJ professional Cindy Miller and myself on the Women of Golf show. And then, of course, Thursday nights on Golf Talk Live uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. Uh, you can hear uh, all of the great guests on the Coach's Corner panel and, of course, my featured guest on the second half. So make sure you tune in each and every week. And if you've got a fellow golfer out there that maybe could use uh, some tips, uh, you want to make sure that they tune in as well. Special thanks to some of the sponsors and supporters of the show, Mr. Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide. Go to southcoastgolfguide.com. Check out uh, everything that's going on there. And uh, also to Meredith Kirk from Meredith Kirk Golf. Go to meredithkirk.com. It's her website and get all the updates there. She's a great uh, LPGA teacher professional in the Myrtle, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area. Uh, Nikki and Tiffany Litherland, thank you for helping spread the word. I appreciate all of your uh, thoughts and input as well. Uh, Mr. Bernie Pinder, uh, owner of Ontic Golf, go to onticgolf.com, and you can check out some great uh, customized putters there on his website. And, of course, Sean Kelly, owner of linkedgolfers.com, a great uh, media platform. Uh, go to linkedgolfers.com. And last but not least, my good friend Peter Doyle from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thank you, Peter, for all of your uh, thoughts and input and all of your support of the show over the years. And on that note, I want to take this opportunity one more time to thank Brennan Stukesbury and James Kyle for uh, jumping in on the Coach's Corner panel tonight. And, of course, uh, my very special guest, John Hughes, uh, for being here tonight as well. Thanks, guys. God bless everybody, and I'll see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live. <laughs>